put your hands together for Matt Oswald. Thank you, Christine. I want to hear more about that friends with benefit thing. What was that? What kind of bookstore is this? Um, quick programming note. Just in case we're all rounded up and tossed into internment camps during the evening, uh, we're going to finish this in hut number nine behind the latrine, okay? Password is Brexit. Uh, this thing come out? Can I take this thing out? Oh, I can't take it out. I can? There we go. Okay. What a travesty of a day in America. But an amazing night to come out and listen to some storytelling, right? God. Um, Michael McKean, he's here, and I had this great thing I was talking to my brother about. It's um, America, right? Here's how I feel about America. America right now, America was like Spinal Tap, and we are currently in the jazz odyssey phase of our country. Like, literally. Like, like Scott Baio is, like, playing the bass, and, uh, you know, we're all just sitting there just with the thumbs down in the front row watching. That's really where we are. Um, but it's so surreal to be here because, like, as we're sitting here, you know, listening to some literature, there's marching in the streets. There's no, like, some huge rally everywhere, like, you know, pitchforks, and it's crazy. It's like, but that's even better. I'm so glad we're here. I mean, I woke up this morning. I was really bummed out, but I'm also like, I get to go and, and do this event tonight, and it's so much better to be doing this than to be staying at home, screaming at egg avatars on Twitter and watching those 24-hour news. We just, it, this is good. So I'm so glad to see it sold out and everybody here, and let's just take our minds off, you know, whatever. And that, and that said, wow, I heard something upstairs in the loft area. Um, We're excited to be here. They're excited, I know. I want to introduce this person. She's, I call her a professional scene stealer. She's in a lot of movies, and you remember her in every one of them, from Ghost World to Cape Fear to Goodfellas. She has, she's a, a great actress, but you, she's a memorable actress. She's, she's, you know, she steals scenes that she's in. Um, we're very good friends, and this book she wrote, um, I love it because it's all framed around movies. It's kind of like, have any of you guys ever read that book, Easy Riders, Raging Bull? That book, it's, her book is just like that, only from a woman's perspective. And it's, it's a fascinating biography wrapped around movies. So without further ado, come on down. Just like Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, please welcome Ileana Douglas. I'm going to put this up here. There we go. There she is. Come on down. Yes, dear. Hi there. Hi. How are you doing? Did you get any sleep last night? No, I got no sleep. I've been I'm drinking no nonstop. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finally... The good thing about Trump is I'm no longer embarrassed about my alcoholism. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Just bring it out of the That's open. A commodity in this, uh, in this yeah. world of ours, you know. Just bring it out of the open. Yeah. I thought I was going to wake up and, like, Los Feliz was going to, like, transformed into Pottersville overnight. Yeah. Like, you know, like, uh, the yeah. Dresden was going to be, like, an olive garden. And, like, the yeah. skylight was going to be, like, an adult bookstore with, like, Uncle Billy working the, uh, you know. Yeah. But uh, it's just, like, it's, it's just this crazy day. But, um. I know. You know, my, my neighbor, my real-life neighbor is actually Lena Dunham. So I'm. Really? I'm, yeah. Why? Well, I, I guess I'll thanks be for the, Thanks her. for the rap video. Lena. Be, that really yeah. worked. Boy, that, that convinced all of us. Yeah, yeah, that between Jesus that and the Lady Gaga, that really went over well in the uh, Rust Belt yeah. in Pennsylvania. In the Rust Belt, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for that. 
<laughs> well, the first couple people here. really are concerned over is the proper pronoun to use when addressing a transgender person. That's that's the number one priority of well, the Rust Belt. Yeah, thanks, guys. I'd say there's yeah. like one positive. The the weird. There's my friend Peter. Hi, Peter. My Jennifer. There's a lot of people. I had you, have a, to, you have I, to point out every single person you recognize, Ileana. You know, we have. A, well, it's just that I had such a nice, as we all maybe did. I had such a nice moment yesterday voting on Laurel in West Hollywood. Did you? And okay. yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, I voted sticker, and you know, I got my. Nice. You know, it was like oh, I was so touching. It was like a third African American. There was Mexican. Kids, gay people, and we were like, we're just the best. We were like high fiving <laughs> each other. Like, we, we got it going on. We we just we're gonna legalize marijuana. Yeah. We're like, we're so fucking hip. And then oh. like ten hours later, like we're mainlining heroin. Yeah, <laughs> you know? like who are we? What is happening? Yeah. So like Gary Johnson became like like the Dean Wormer from like Animal House has ruined everybody's like good time. Yeah. You know, he came out there and just like yeah. I'm gonna steal a couple of votes and screw everybody over. Yeah, yeah. Know? I started to feel like I was <laughs> I was in like a car ride with my parents going to Vermont where we just want to blame someone <laughs> for like whose fault is this? It's like, well, Joan, we if we hadn't started earlier and if you hadn't wanted to get the bathing suit, we just want to find someone to blame at yeah. this point. Point, yeah. You know? Yeah. So it was. It went from kumbaya to uh, you know pitchforks in the street. There literally are people like in every major city. There are protests going on right now. But, and but I have I, to ask. I wonder how many of those people actually voted yesterday. You know what I'm saying? That's the. Uh, you yeah. think so? Mm-hmm. But in the in spite I, of it all, like again, I, I feel like the artists. It's going to be our responsibility to to make even people even more depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Just to show them that once you're down there, you can even go a little deeper. I think that in spite of everything, you <laughs> And have, on that note. Yeah. <laughs> I 1972. Think, uh, yes. Young Eliana Douglas. I'm going to hold your book up here. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and then we're going to bring down these wonderful people upstairs to read Man, sections of this book. Man, my friends are so nice. And, and they're, they're so great. not yeah. drunk like I am. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting there, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> There's some wonderful hitching post wine that I brought. It's so good from the sideways. It's if you guys are we please have wine help yourself, yeah. Yeah. If you're not drinking, start drinking. Yeah. It's gonna make life so much better for four years. Doesn't it feel like we're like the band on the Titanic? Like we're up here doing this little and little like the entire world is like <laughs> You know, collapsing, and we're just, you know, so tell me about working with Matt Dillon. You know, just yeah. boom, explosion out there. Well, that's the key. I feel like, I feel a little uh, homage, too, to, uh, you know, Edward G. Robinson and Soylent Green. Like, oh, just put me on the slab and slip, show me a movie well, <laughs> of all the good things that have happened so, in my life. God, yeah. We we booked this event about two months ago. Yeah, I was the one that noticed that it was the night after the election, and I, I remember right. talking. I said, "Hey, what if Trump wins? Laugh, laugh. <laughs> Nobody is going to want to show up to this thing. They're going to be way too depressed." But yeah. we both were like, "That's just not going to happen." So we never conceivably thought that we'd be 
you, you know, know, in this position. We, I've we done were really something really interesting. I had a, a very funny epiphany because a lot of the book is, you know, wrote, wrote, each chapter is a story about my life, how a movie star, truly a movie star, a movie changed my life. And I remember it was 1980, and I remember doing musical theater. I was a child, kid in Avon, Connecticut, yeah. doing The Music Man. And I remember, literally, we had to perform the night that Reagan won. And I remember people again were like, "Sounds like it's funny," but like people were coming off stage and like vomiting and really, you know, yeah. Was it like, because of his acting or because of his politics? Because they were like they sensed. I think as artists, you know, we sense we want a utopia. This is what the whole book is about. You know, my parents, you know, they saw the movie Easy Rider, yeah, and they changed their entire lives and, they, and your like, life they, with it, yeah, yeah, and they believed in this utopia. And I think that artists, as as Pollyanna as it sounds, believe in a utopia that art. Can can change things that we can have a message that we we all want to live in this world where we, where we all you know kind of love each other and again I remember those Reagan years were very tough I remember being a kid and watching grown ups come off the stage of a crazy musical like The Music Man and telling us you know. Everything's going to be bad. Everything, you know, wow. and it's it's going to be bad. And I, I mean, I think that for if you're an artist, selfishly, you think, well, the first thing Newt Gingrich is going to do because that's what he's did is yep. going to try to stop the National Endowment of the Arts. That's what he did with Jane Alexander. That's yep. that's what you know. Art becomes the least important thing in a society, and art joins us all together, makes us laugh, makes us feel as if we're all in the you know, in the in the same ballpark. And I think that, that for us that are artists that that's the thing that scares us most because we've you know, we're united by films yeah. and And you have experience for that. So it, so this election must have made you even more it must have brought back a lot of bad memories from Listen, like, oh my God, this is not, uh, not know, my, again. My grandfather was Melvin Douglas. Yeah. They keep all day long, they keep quoting the scene from the candidate, what now. Yeah. He was he was a, a remarkable person with great liberal ideas that was like, you know, I was 12 years old. I was like, Grandpa, I can't <laughs> comprehend, uh, you know, uh, the Franco regime. I just, <laughs> just want to see Evita. It's not. It's going over my head, you know. But they—that's the kind of grandparents I had. My my grandmother was Helen Gahagan Douglas. She ran for Senate in 1950, yeah. and you know, my grandfather was the type of person I remember. You know, having an experience with him, he was very much like that dyed in the wool kind of kind of liberal. And I wanted to sit at, you know, he would have these, like, dinners with uh, playwrights like, you know, Robert Anderson or Gore Vidal or Myrna Loy, you know. And I remember saying, and he lived on Riverside Drive, and I remember saying, you know, I want to sit at the grown-ups table. And he said, when you're interesting, you can sit at the grown-ups table. <laughs> and you would think that that was harsh, except that in my growing up, that was the bargain that I think we all lived by. I used to go to my grandfather's library and touch all the books that he had and think, wow. I don't understand these books, but I know it's important to read them 
you know, Madame Bovary, Norman Mailer, Gore Vidal. I don't know what they mean. Herman Hess. You know, I used to see yeah. these things and not understand them. But we had this bargain that there were important things. You were supposed to go to Paris and look at the Mona Lisa in your lifetime. You were, you know, he would always tell me, the first thing you need to do when you're 18 is go to Europe and travel around Europe. You know, we had yeah. a certain bargain as a society. And I think that that's what me personally, I don't know if other people, you know, I had such a love for him and such a love of this intelligence. Like when I'm smart, I get to sit at the grown-ups table. I get to sit at the table with Gore Vidal. Yeah. And I feel that that's what I feel shaky about kind of right now. Was, was your grandfather, was he around when your dad read Easy Riders and completely changed your, and what was his opinion of that? If he, if, because your, your life was different. But you have like a pre and post Easy Rider life, don't you? Yes, and absolutely. Was, I'm curious what Melvin's... Uh, well, because my, you know, my listen, my grand, grandfather comes out of the studio system where he's in movies with Greta Garbo and you know, life is amazing. And then yeah. my, my dad is like the counterculture. He's like, you know, the monkey's doing head. It's like everything <laughs> is insanity. And uh, I think he was trying to understand it, like the mm -hmm. Hollywood establishment was trying to do. They were trying to understand it. Yeah. But yet it was that call to values of like what what were what were the liberal values what yeah. were the post war liberal values versus yeah. the 60s radicals values which was my dad's values were you know, anti-establishment, anti-capitalism, you know, we're going to, like, live off the land. You know, the values of Easy Rider were that um, were the anti-government, mm -hmm. anti-establishment, you know. And I, and my grandfather worked for a living. Yeah. So that became and When you were suspicious. in that studio system, it was a complete departure to, like, to think that, you know, the way Dennis Hopper made movies and that it was a, it was a completely different experience. So I think that maybe he had a different a hard time understanding... You know, that mm -hmm. probably relating to your dad when he kind of... But I think that he was trying to relate to it in the way that probably Henry Fonda was trying to relate to Jane yeah. Fonda. You know, they're trying to relate to it, yet their values, it's just my opinion, comes out of World War II values. Of like, yes, we want fairness for all, and but my... Dad's values and my mom's values were like, no, we have to blow up everything, wow. you know, um, and that, you know, that let the interesting thing with my dad is with this commune, he started, you know, he saw the movie Easy Rider and he's so, which is so interesting today again with this. You know, which, with what's happening, and Dennis Hopper isn't here. And sometimes it's you know, I work for TCM, and I've been prepping for my interview with Dick Cavett. Yeah, with so many interesting people. But again, we're we're like, are we thinking about a world that doesn't exist anymore? <laughs> like again, we're 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 remembering these you know these values, things that that. We no longer hold it uh, important anymore. But my grandfather's values were the values to feed every person and, you yeah. know, post-depression values. My dad's values were the government is the problem, 
you know, yeah. unhook your television, live off the land, drop mm-hmm. acid, free love. <laughs> you know, it was blowing up the system. Yeah. Well, that was. There were two significant moments in your life that you really wrote about eloquently in this book. It's um, the easier writer thing, and also working with a publicist, uh, Peggy Siegel. That changed everything for you, didn't it? Well, the interesting thing for me is, you know, my parents were so into the Easy Rider movie and the hippie culture that for me, I gravitated because I was looking for a father, and so the father that I found was my grandfather, was Melvin Douglas, and if my parents were in their movie, their 60s movie, group therapy and, you know, free love and, hey, man, you know, but I needed stability. And so my movie became Melvin Douglas because if I was with Melvin Douglas, he was... Talking to Myrna Loy and, yeah. you know, Paul had Goddard. So, like, my movie became, oh, I want to I want to be with my grandfather drinking champagne. And, so I'm curious if the, so you're saying that the mirror father, mirror sequence in Ghost World was about <laughs> Melvin Douglas. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. Yes, I yes. love that. Well, yes. By the way, she directed, I mean, that was her idea. That was not in the script. She did the whole mirror father, mirror thing. Well, Terry. part of that movie. Yeah, Terry's Wyckoff is such a doll. And <laughs> he's uh, worked. Sort of on a sidebar, collaborating on different things. But uh, yes, I had certain ideas having moved to New York in 1982, 83 about <laughs> performance arts and things like that. Wanting, wanting to you, you know, know that. But everybody, that every, every actor <laughs> knows that you put a lot of a lot of little things into yeah, performances. Yeah. We do. Well, getting back to um, Peggy yes. Siegel, yeah, that was that yeah. was the other significant moment. I mean, because because that that. Well, working for Peggy Siegel, she was a group. film publicist that, um, you know, I got out of acting school. I didn't want to be, uh, I, I was very much interested in the journey of show business uh, in addition to being an actor. And I worked for this film publicist, Peggy Siegel, amazing persona. We did the films Untouchables, Beverly Hills Cops, uh, Princess Bride, like, uh, you know, worked with Barry Levinson, Michael Douglas. We had some amazing clients. But um, through working with with her, um, it sort of got known. This was in the Brill Building on uh, Broadway and, and it, our neighbors got to got to know. I passed my resume out, and under my resume, it said "special skills, blood curdling screams." And how did that pay off for you? Hmm. Yeah, it paid off hmm. pretty well hmm. because uh, his director, his name was Martin Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. Incidentally, did you know that Rudy Giuliani, Chris, Christie, what? and Trump—they're you know—they cite Goodfellas as their one of their favorite films. I'm surprised, yeah, yeah. I know. Is it, Billy Bats their favorite character? <laughs> I, it just seems like that's the guy they would gravitate towards, you know. But anyway, they—I work for this publicist, and again, the only reason I got this job. God help us, because uh, nobody even cares anymore. 
but you know, I knew the difference between like who Garson Kanan was. I was like, yeah, that's Garson Kanan. I knew that you know Adolph Green was married to Phyllis Newman, but his partner was Betty Comden, and so therefore that was a skill that was identified <laughs> as a real genuine skill. And so I worked for this publicist in New York, and essentially inviting a lot of famous people to premieres and parties. But on our floor were many incredible directors and Martin Scorsese was one of these directors and um, I handed my resume you know because you're young you're like hey anything ever comes up <laughs> are you kidding me <laughs> and literally like one day I'm like do you really have a blood curdling because they don't even have that anymore it's so archaic yeah. but back in the day <laughs> To get to get a laugh, you'd put something funny under like special skills, you know. So I wrote special skills, milking a goat because uh, I did know how to milk a goat. Uh, great legs, which I do have, and uh, <laughs> blood curdling screams. And this caught the attention of Mr. Scorsese's assistant, and then which cut to me, you know, meeting uh, Marty and screaming for him and. <laughs> And he loved your scream. He kept having you come back again and again well, because yeah, you were so each, good. Each, and, each and time I come down and scream, I screamed. I did. I dubbed in Last Temptation of Christ. I dubbed all these screams. And, <laughs> but through the process, there's screams in Last Temptation of Christ. I didn't know that. Like the Fall of Rome. <laughs> but through the process of of doing this, I'd come down. And this one's always so funny, which I write about in the book. Like, you know, the only movie of Marty's that I really liked was King of Comedy. Because they talk about, and people are going to be reading about this chapter, but I had a friend named Elias Kataeus who bore a striking resemblance to Robert De Niro. And we went to acting school together in 1983, which is coincidentally the year that they shot King of Comedy. And Elias Kataeus thought it'd be really fun to go to the set of, you know, with, like looking like the guy from Taxi Driver <laughs> and go to the set and Mohawk or no Mohawk? He didn't have the Mohawk, but okay. he had the but he looked so much like De Niro that he was like I'm going to go to the set. Why not? This is the kind of delusion you need when you're an actor. I'm going to go to the set. De Niro's going to see how much I look like him, and he'll put me in the movie. But, in fact, what happened was that they thought he was a dangerous stalker, and they asked him to leave. And the next day in school, he was like, oh, my God, it's amazing, amazing. They, they asked me to leave. And then years, years later, because, you know, my life is a movie, and I'm only, like, making little checkpoints. I'm actually in a relationship with Martin Scorsese. He could be my future husband, but all I really care about is like, could you confirm the Elias Kataeus story? Wow. From 1983. (laughs) It's like my job as a film historian. I was like, yeah. Marty, I was there. I was there. <laughs> Elias, I remember he went to the set. So it was so exciting for me to kind of like confirm wow. some of the uh, kooky things. Well, I think leaving it at Martin Scorsese is a great way to segue to our yes. first reader. Yes. Uh, do you want to introduce her? Uh, no, I'm going to let you in. Okay. Um, shy. She is a wonderful actress on this show called Better Call Saul. Yes. Have you ever seen, watch, guys watch Better Call Saul? Amazing actress. Um, and... Uh, and she's going to read a section on your experience on Goodfellas. Is that correct? 
Uh, yes. Yes. This yes. is this is me sort of trying trying to attempting. Uh, I'm in a relationship. With, with Mr. Scorsese, Mr. Scorsese. And you're on the set. And remember, Goodfellas, our future president. This is, her, this is his favorite movie. Who would know? Wow. And my so, attempting yeah. to get in the film with my boyfriend's wow. movie. Yeah. So please welcome Ray Seahorn. Yes, thank you. Way down below the ocean. Hi. Matt, you want me to go to this one or that one? I thought I was going to get to sit in Ileana's lap. That's sort of sad. Because Ileana's going to sit there. Oh, okay, great. Good. Sit here? Cool. I'll comment. Yeah, like like shake your head if I'm reading it back. We're going to be here all night, so don't... There's booze, so don't... Right? We'll be here all night. Do it. (laughs) Hi, guys. Hi. Okay, let's just do this. This book is so good. If anyone has any questions (laughs) afterwards, too, please feel free. Good, good, good. Yeah. It was early in 1989 that I first met Robert De Niro. It was right after the premiere of New York Stories. I was in a dark hall on my way to Martin Scorsese's apartment to discuss being in a movie called Wise Guys, later changed to be called Goodfellas. At the time, Marty was living in a very tall, very modern building on West 57th Street named Metropolitan Tower, nicknamed the Razorblade Building. The elevator, the elevator that took you to his penthouse apartment on the 75th floor was so fast, it was like a rocket launch. After you lurched to a stop and got off, the effect was always the same. Complete disorientation, nausea, and confusion about which dimension you were in. <laughs> Everything was pitch black, as if you were in an air raid, so your eyes had to adjust like a raccoon's as you made your way down the hall. There was also this loud screeching sound day and night that Marty assured me was the wind whistling through the glass and steel, but it made you feel as if the building were going to crash to the ground. So there I am, making my way down the dark hall, and the wind is blowing like a haunted mansion at Not Scary Farm Marty's Spooky Hallway Ride. <laughs> and who do I see coming the other way but Robert De Niro? There was no official word that Robert De Niro was in the movie, or even considering being in the movie, so I got a little secret thrill that maybe that's why he was leaving Marty's. I smiled politely at him as I passed by and respectfully and quietly said, Hello. He politely (laughs) nodded back, said, Hello. And we both kept walking. I did notice that he was wearing large horn-rimmed glasses that I thought made him look very sophisticated, like Clark Kent. It was a good look. Marty opened the door for me, and I said, I just said hello to Robert De Niro. Does that mean he's going to be in the movie? (laughs) And Marty looked a little concerned and said, you recognized him? (laughs) I laughed and said, of course, he's Robert De Niro. And he said, but he was wearing a disguise. (laughs) And I said, Marty, he was wearing glasses. And Marty said, I know. He thinks that's a disguise. (laughs) And I said, well, you might want to tell him it's not working because he looks like Robert De Niro with glasses on. I'm not sure if Marty did tell him, but I never saw him wear those Clark Kent glasses again. The casting of Goodfellas was top secret stuff. I was privy to hearing about and sometimes even seeing every actor or actress that was even in consideration, but I was sworn to secrecy. Listen, I knew that I was in consideration and Marty wouldn't confirm Marty wouldn't confirm or deny if I was going to be in the movie and we were in a relationship. <laughs> That's how top secret it was. There was a building excitement that Marty would be reunited with Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro 
But names like Tom Cruise, Bruce Willis, and John Malkovich were also being mentioned. I let the De Niro casting issue drop, but it did not seem accidental that the Godfather had paid Marty a visit. (laughs) The next time I saw Robert De Niro was on the set of Goodfellas. I became a fixture on set, sitting quietly behind or near Marty, absorbing everything that happened on what is often called the best film of the 90s. I was afraid not to go because I, I, I would miss something. One day, they were shooting at the Copacabana, which was near my apartment, and Marty said, we're doing something pretty interesting today. You should come down and see it. It was, of course, the famous Steadicam shot entering from the back of the restaurant. Another day, we were jammed into the Hawaii Kai on Broadway. It was ancient, and inside everything was made of straw and grass. Marty said, careful, this place, this place has fleas. <laughs> and let me tell you, it did. <laughs> I was at a booth watching Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta act the, but I'm funny how? Funny like a clown scene? And then there was Mr. De Niro. Word was spreading about Goodfellas, and acts. Actors, mobsters, you name it, were requesting if they, too, could come down just just to get a glimpse of Robert De Niro. In some neighborhoods, a carnival-like atmosphere developed, and folks were having cookouts and sitting in lawn chairs outside places where they were shooting. It was like they were a part of the atmosphere, and Marty harnessed that energy and put it into the film. It's hard to explain the impact of Robert De Niro at the time he and Marty were making Goodfellas. He was a god in New York. I mean, there were actors... Vincent Gallo, for one, who had agreed to be extras just to brag that they were in Goodfellas with him. I had just been watching, and I had been happy with that, but now I was going to be in a few scenes with him. In one scene, I was going to have a line right before his. Marty created an atmosphere on the set that was fun and homey, like a large Italian family, but the scenes with De, with De Niro always changed that dynamic. His presence brought attention and energy that I had never experienced before or since. When he walked on set, everyone stopped talking, and it was like, boom, something important is about to happen. We were shooting the famous Christmas scene in the bar where Robert De Niro chews out Johnny Roseby for having bought a new Cadillac. <laughs> All of Brooklyn was outside cheering. As I've said, people were having barbecues and drinking wine and applauding every time an actor walked into or out of the bar. It was past midnight, but nobody wanted to leave. When they were shooting that last scene and De Niro opened the door and revealed the Cadillac, there were hundreds of people to the side that the camera had to avoid. Inside, I had a front row seat watching Robert De Niro. Enough time to get pretty nervous because my first line in Goodfellas was coming up. He had been shooting in the bar. We had been shooting in the bar a few days, and there was going to be this very long, complicated tracking shot with most of the cast involved. And I had a line during it to Julie Garfield, which was, if I even look at anyone else, he'll kill me. The camera then holds for our reaction and then moves on to De, to De Niro and Joe Pesci. And the scene continues. It was like an eight-minute shot. We rehearsed it almost all day. Finally, Marty said they were ready to shoot. And even though I had told myself, don't screw this shot up, don't do anything funny, don't do do anything phony, don't do anything that makes Robert De Niro go over to Marty and say, how did that bad actor get in my movie? (laughs) But still, I didn't quite pull it off. (laughs) The first stupid thing I did was to try to get a laugh. I thought... 
let me goose my one line in the scene like a bad actor. So the camera is tracking along. There are 20 people in the frame. All these actions. Out of the corner of my eye, I see the camera getting to me, and all of a sudden, I become Eve Arden. <laughs> if he catches me with anyone, he'll kill me. <laughs> then I down a glass of wine to button it. It was dreadful, of course. Awful and hammy. I knew it immediately, and so did Marty. He yelled out, cut, cut! Technical difficulties! <laughs> Everyone started groaning. Everyone else had been brilliant. Marty came over to me and whispered into my ear so no one could hear it but me. Don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> then he laughed, sorry, everyone, sorry. Running back to the camera, our fault, our fault. Technical problems. $20,000 mistake, Marty later told me. He never let anyone know but me, but he cared enough that he wanted every actor in the frame to be perfect. People always ask me, what did you learn from Marty? A thousand things. That was one. Sensitivity. A love for actors and their processes. I did it right the next time. Wait, the next hundred times. <laughs> because we continued to shoot that same scene for the next 14 hours. There was a lot of downtime between shots, and this is where I learned the first surprising thing about what it's like to work with Robert De Niro. He's really funny. He loves to laugh. I was in a sketch comedy group at the time called Manhattan Punchline, and I dabbled in, in stand-up. I had a couple routines that Marty was aware of, so in between takes, he brought De Niro over to hear them. I used to do a pretty good Shelley Winters impression. She was then a blousey, older actress with a kind of warbly voice who had an association with the actor's studio. She would make the talk show rounds babbling about her association with De Niro or Mailer Monroe. She had this habit of sort of rubbing her, her rather large breasts and saying, when Bobby and I were at the studio with Marilyn, I taught Marilyn how to be sexy. So I would do that impression for De Niro, adding... When Bobby and I did Bloody Mama, he asked me for advice, and I said, Bobby, don't eat the fish off the truck. Go with the chicken. Here, have some on my breasts. <laughs> I had another routine called Raging Bullwinkle. Basically, cartoon characters Rocky and Bullwinkle acting out a scene from Raging Bull as Jake and Joe LaMotta. So with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci both staring me down, I did my Rocky the Flying Squirrel. You're nuts! Let this, uh, you let this girl ruin your life! Then Bullwinkle. Rocky, did you fuck my wife? <laughs> then Squirrel. How could you ask me that? I'm your brother! <laughs> People ask me if making Cape Fear was scary. <laughs> no. Doing Raging Bullwinkle for Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci was much scarier. Mm. Yay! I gotta hey. ask you, did did because you made up a line in Goodfellas, didn't you? You you did one, not I that made one, up many not lines, that one, but the right. one. The, my my favorite one? one though in the uh, the uh, beauty uh, Miami. Yeah, the Miami line. To give that one, that's, that's my grandmother, Annie Scavetta. Shout out to Grandma. Come on, give him the line. Don't don't know it. Uh, well, my grandmother lived in Flushing, Queens, for many years. She worked at Gertz Department Store, spent many a time there, and uh, and then she she and my grandfather ended up moving to uh, Clearwater. You know, I don't know. Deerfield Beach or something, Florida. They hated it. She's like, oh yeah, it's like 
It's like you woke up and you're in Jew heaven, yeah. you know, and she, that's what she felt about Florida. So, again, my whole goal was like, if I'm in movies, somehow I will, you know. But didn't you do that line because somebody on the set said, hey, give her a line, like she was like... Uh, no, my whole idea being in the movies was like, if you talk enough, they'll eventually put the camera on you wow. and start shooting. I remember, again, I was in a relationship with this person, yeah. and he gave me a script, and I was like, I don't have any lines, you know? Yeah. And he's like, you come up with something. So when I, that was pressure. I wanted to it's stay. A great line. You know, I wanted great. to stay in the relationship. Yeah. So when, but what a great boyfriend to blame your mistake on a technical difficulty, though. That's that's a that's a yeah, classic guy. Very you know, sweet. Michael sweet. Bay wouldn't have done that to uh, you know anybody. He could no, no. It's so weird. So again, like when seeing that movie in that scene, everyone remembers the scene, right? When the girl goes, "I love that kind of like you know." The, uh, <laughs> They opened the door and like they couldn't open the door far enough because there were hundreds of people outside with wow. you know barbecuing. I had no idea. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, and they had to literally position the cameras in a certain way so as not to get all the background people like, yeah. yelling a, and screaming. A, and, oh, De Niro, me. Yeah, it was know? a carnival. <laughs> and do people remember that Joe Pesci was a recording artist? I think. That was. You do. Got to get you into my life. Ah. Uh, radio the other day. Really? Yeah. yeah. What year? What year is that? And you called the police. Yeah. Yeah. And you knew right then that Hillary was doomed when when they're on the plane. <laughs> Joe Pesci on the radio. 70s, wow. Yeah. Love to wow. sing. He loved to sing. Another little funny story. Or did he go by Joe Fish back then, or was it Joe Pesci? Because he used to go by Joe Fish. I was like, his, you know. Okay. <laughs> they had, you know, another little funny thing about Joe. They were staying at, um, oh God, I can't remember. There's a hotel on Central Park West. But he was dating a woman who's now, sadly, I think she's in prison for murdering someone. There but, you go. That's, that's book two. Yeah. But I remember I was like, I was so earnest. I was from Connecticut. I'm a one line and good fellas. And I said to Marty, you know, I'm from Connecticut. I'm like, I'm going to write Joe Pesci a thank you letter. Mr. De Niro, like, thank you so much for making me feel so comfortable. And, and I remember, and I wrote Joe a letter saying, you know, thank you so much for, you know, everything you've done for me, something cute or whatever, Mayflower, the Mayflower Hotel, okay. left it off for him at the Mayflower. He calls Marty and he goes, what the fuck is she doing? My girlfriend read that letter. She thinks she's fucking me now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I, I cause nothing but trouble. She just can't go anywhere. Jesus, Ileana. Well, sorry. Well, um, moving right along, yes. <laughs> from, from destroying uh, $20,000 of Martin Scorsese's uh, yeah. film to... Uh, Sorry. Uh, the, our next reader is... Uh, what is he reading? What, what section is he reading? I forget. Jesus. You know. Ben, what are you reading? Oh, 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 listen. Uh, I, I adore... But, can, I, can I just talk about how much... Of I course. Crush I'll, give the, uh, I'll give the mic to you, yeah. Listen... Listen, my whole life, my whole dating career with Joe, with Mr. Scorsese was based on, again, the knowledge that I knew film people. And so when I was, you know, I, I, I got part in, I got this part in, you know, doing looping for Last Temptation of Christ. So I was like, 
I used to love movies from the 50s, like where, you know, girls would like walk in New York, dun dun dun, dun dun dun, dun you know. And <laughs> she then can't help it. The yeah, girl can't help yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> That's from Pink Flamingos, actually. And so, like, every day I'd go in and I'd be doing my looping. I got a job working on lastimation, you know, looping, and I'd walk in every day, and I was actually one of those women. Please, God, I hope there's other women out there. But I was like, if Martin Scorsese sees I have the right book under my arm, he'll really, <laughs> he'll really think I'm a really unique, interesting person, you know. So I'd come in with like my my autobiography of Joseph Mankiewicz, and it would work. It would work. Wow. Jo- Marty would go. Oh, you're reading the autobiography of Just Mega. You know, that's not actually the best book on him. You know, there's another book, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, oh, is there? Oh, that's wonderful, Mr. Scorsese. What book <laughs> should I be reading about him? <laughs> so we would have this. But I was madly, madly in love with uh, with Joseph Mankiewicz because I always imagined yeah. he was like the type of guy that would be right for me, which is perfect because I'm in New York. It's the 80s. He there's, I am not going to have a relationship with Joseph Mankiewicz. That's not in the realm of possibilities. But, but you know, I'd go to work every day, and yeah. that was that was kind of my fantasy. But Martin Scorsese was like, you know, second, third best thing. Okay, <laughs> really? Okay. Well, speaking of Mankiewicz's, yes. um, he was. I mean, again. You know, I'm 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 gonna go on an island. Like he was. Ben, for ben me, really wants to come down. <laughs> We're gonna bring Ben down there, but he was he was for me in all the reading. Like, yeah, that's the type of guy I want to be with. That's the kind of guy who will understand me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then somehow, luckily, I I got to meet him. So, well, look who's to your left. Look who's you, uh, to my yeah. left, my darling Ben Mankiewicz. I just believe. I just, I just, I just want to say that uh, you were uh, uh, an actress, uh, so there was every chance you could have a relationship with Joe Michaels. <laughs> I know. I didn't know uh, that. I you met the that. threshold. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, do you have your copy? Because I, uh, I oh. have the. If not, I can do this. But this is. I have the. Uh, Yo, I have the galleys because <laughs> uh, Ileana sent them to me, and there um, it is. too cheap to buy my own copy. Um, Start with that. Start with that. I also have my. Okay. So yeah. Can I? Can I just very briefly? When I was talking with my editor, Colin Dickerman at Flatiron, he'd go. You tell me the stories, and then when there's actually photographs to back them up, that's what's disturbing. That I actually, I mean, you can tell by the photo. It's like, no, I'm not screwing around. What did I do my first trip to Hollywood? First trip to Hollywood, there's a photo of... uh the photo is of uh, Ileana kneeling in front of a star on the Walk of Fame for Joseph L. Mankiewicz, my, uh, my great uncle. Uh, first trip to Hollywood, priorities. Clean Joe Mankiewicz's star on the Walk of Fame. Then try to call Billy Wilder. <laughs> Years later, his grandnephew, TCM's Ben Mankiewicz, would thank me for being the family maid. <laughs> Yes. The, uh, yeah. So, uh, but you just as we'll get to, but that just so we know the the the, the meeting you're going to describe that you describe in the book with Joe, that was the uh, that was the only one, right? Well, I saw him from afar because remember I worked for Peggy Siegel, this film publicist, and I would 
get to call, you know, the wife and like. I didn't care about the movie. I'd be like, you know, we're screening uh, Princess Bride, and I really think Joe Magowitz needs to see this movie. <laughs> so, but I did. The first time I saw him with the movie was Good Morning Vietnam, and they were they did the premiere at the Twenty One Club, and I did see Joseph L. Magowitz. You know, walking around Twenty One Club, and he was talking. He was going around talking to waiters. <laughs> you know. But you know, I shot a film here, and again, I was like, oh my God, this is so painful. Nobody knows who he is. And <laughs> I knew who he was, but I didn't have the guts to talk to him. So real quick, because you know better than I do, uh, what uh, uh, actresses do we believe Joe slept with? Everybody. Yeah. But that was my fantasy. That's why I wanted to be in show business. It right. was like... You're an actress, and you get to sleep with the director, and then they'll tell you who. Oh, I you thought are. you get to be a you get to sleep with a Mankiewicz because I was thinking, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I love but Hollywood. Yeah. Judy Garland, mm-hmm. uh, Linda Darnell. Yeah, Linda Darnell definitely. Um, I think I think I think I think Marilyn could be Marilyn. Yeah. I mean, listen, I met the guy, and I told Joe. He was 83 years old. Well, I'll tell you what. You, okay. well, let's let's okay, get to okay, it because okay. you, you describe it well. All right. So uh, the next example. Ken is still around. The next example of how my relationship to directors changed once I became an actress involves an equally impressive director, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. He was charming, witty, engaging, like all Mankiewicz's. <laughs> All right, that part wasn't, that, uh, that may not have been in there. He was charming, witty, engaging, all the things I expected. A good director needs to feel like he is directing. A good actress needs and wants to be directed. It's a symbiotic, often seductive relationship. So it's probably a good thing I never worked with Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who was rumored to have had love affairs with most of his leading ladies. Joseph Mankiewicz was right up there with Wilder for me, some of my favorite films of his. Are the Pitch Perfect All About Eve, A Letter to Three Wives, and the Romantic, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. I had seen Mr. Mankiewicz. I like it how throughout this she refers to Joe as Mr. Mankiewicz. It just that feels good to say. I had seen Mr. Mankiewicz at a number of, Petty Se- a number of uh, Peggy Siegel's premieres, most notably Barry Levinson's Good Morning Vietnam. The after party was held at the legendary restaurant 21, which was prominently featured in All About Eve. When I saw Mr. Mankiewicz <laughs> walking through the very rooms he had so brilliantly captured in some of that film's most unforgettable scenes, I thought, once again, movies in real life have collided. We were looping The Last Temptation of Christ, and Marty was impressed that I was reading the Mankiewicz biography, Pictures Will Talk, by Kenneth L. Geist. But he winced and said, eh, not a very flattering book, and brought me one he much preferred, More About All About Eve, by Gary Carey with Joseph L. Mankiewicz, along with Marty's own biography, Scorsese on Scorsese. (laughs) Interesting way to uh, court someone. Stop reading the book about the other director and start reading the book about me. (laughs) Thought Joe was a bastard? What do you think about this guy? Obviously, uh, Marty admired his work, so around the time of Cape Fear, I asked Marty if he might reach out to Mr. Mankiewicz, invite him to the premiere, and then we could have dinner with him. One of the things that was endearing about Marty is that whenever I would suggest meeting some of these Hollywood greats, he would suddenly become insecure. Why on earth would Joe Mankiewicz want to see Cape Fear? Then I'd remind him that, first of all, he was doing it for me. (laughs) 
Second of all, um, you're Martin Scorsese. You're a great director. He'd be thrilled to meet you and see Cape Fear. But he was always surprised whenever he found out that another director admired his work. He looked at Mankiewicz as if he were another, as if he were in another pantheon of Hollywood history. Well, uh, Mankiewicz did indeed attend the opening of Cape Fear, and a few weeks later we arranged to meet him and his wife, Rosemary, for dinner at a restaurant he loved near his home in Bedford, New York, where Joe, I'll add, lived for uh, the last uh, 30 or 40 years of his life. Uh, many of those years uh, after uh, Cleopatra with something that we like to call writer's block. <laughs> uh, Marty, uh, Marty was, uh, he made a western uh, called, I think, There Was a Crooked Man yes. with uh, Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Uh, and if you, you know, if you know anything about Joe Mankiewicz, this was not a guy put on earth to make a uh, western. <laughs> yeah, you don't make All About Eve and then a western. <laughs> but we have to have a horse? That would have been Joe's reaction. So why can't anyone wear a gown? Okay, so... Um, Marty was meeting him uh, as the director of Cape Fear. Mankiewicz gave him an overall critique of the film, which was very insightful. Marty was humbled by his praise. They talked about the cameraman and the lighting, technical things. And then Mankiewicz turned to me, the actress. He proceeded to completely dissect my character, Lori Davis. He broke down every single choice I had made. He read deeply into my character's psyche. Now, I hadn't even told Marty some of the homework that had gone into my emotional choices, but Mankiewicz had picked on every little nuance I had played as if he were a psychic. His blue eyes bored into mine. As he spoke, it seemed there was no one else at the table but the two of us. He wanted to let me know that he, and he alone, understood me. I felt like I was being redirected in Cape Fear by Joe Mankiewicz himself, which did not go unnoticed by the other director of Cape Fear, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, who was glaring at us across the table. When he finished, I said, uh, Mr. Mankiewicz, did all of your leading ladies fall in love with you? Because I think I'm in love with you right now. <laughs> he smiled and said, this sounds like Joe, by the way. All actresses want to be psychoanalyzed. They don't know who they are, so they want to be told who they are. <laughs> and I find that's true of a lot of women. Um, if a man can do that, said Joe, then any woman will fall in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> he said it in jest, writes Ileana, but I'm not so sure. Yeah. Yeah. He said it in jest, but I thought there was tremendous truth to it. I was certainly putty in his hands, and he knew it. Tell me who I am, Joe. Tell me who you want me to be. <laughs> we took some pictures, and he said he would sign them and send them along to us. A week later, they arrived. And there I am, sitting next to Mr. Mankiewicz, and I have this huge smile on my face, and so does he. And the caption Joe wrote read, For Ileana, 20 years ago, this pose would be blurred. At first, I didn't understand what it meant, but Marty grabbed the picture away from me. <laughs> blurred? How dare he? My other director explained it to me. Blurred because you'd be moving around. Get it? Marty then refused to let me hang the picture. I loved that he was jealous of an 81-year-old, even if it was Joseph L. Mankiewicz. 
And what a memorable sly line written by this witty screenwriter director to his actress. Uh, yes. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. What can you do? What, what can I do with Mr. Mankiewicz? Yeah. I mean, um... A lot of like uh, inside stuff going on there. It felt like didn't it do you? Like something like you know. <laughs> I, I, is that like again when he said that you know like all? I mean, I was you know. All women want to be told who they are by a man. Yeah. <laughs> and I the think... great thing is, is that you're Ileana Douglas, and you're like so strong and tough, and you're you know you, there's no one literally there's no one else like you. You were unreplicable, and yet you fell for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You were like, yeah, man, uh, t- oh. tell me who I am. Well, that's, I mean, I do think there's this vulnerability of like, who, uh, God, this relief, tell me who I am. I don't know who I am, you know. Hey. Joe was r- famous, uh, well regarded for how he wrote women. He could write yes. for women. And, yeah. and and it worked. I mean, you know, it, 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 in, in, it, worked in, it worked in the movies and it worked yeah. for what Joe also well, you know, again, I write in the book about this, like, this is what I'm a sucker for. Like, oh, yeah, I'm watching all these movies, and now I'm having this experience. Like, I want to have that experience, you know? I will just quickly say that as a, a, a you know, Joe died when I was uh, 26 years old. I knew him uh, pretty well, because he yeah. was the the last member of that, of that generation. Yeah. Uh, I was... Uh, uh, terrified of him in every single encounter that we had because he was an intellectual. Or? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. He was a super intellectual, yeah, he and he really pres- was. And he presumed a level of of intellectual understanding on the part of everybody sitting with him, mm-hmm. and that stuff was way over my. I don't even know what most of his movies are about. <laughs> I just read the teleprompter before the movie. Yeah. But again, that goes into that thing of like my grandfather and what we were talking about before is we made this weird agreement with society that those people knew things that we didn't know. And so therefore, if I loved the movies and was in love with the movies, that someone like Joseph Al Mankiewicz, who made the movie All About Eve, if he was going to like deign on me, this is who you are, and this is, I'm like, all right, Joe, I'll, I'll do that. Well, I, I'm going, just for the record, I'll say this is before, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you move on, of course, but the, as his nephew, uh, you don't have to refer to him every time as Joseph L. Mankiewicz anymore. <laughs> he wanted to fuck you. You can call him Joe. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what? You know what? Because you're you, you can call yeah. him Uncle. You can call him Uncle Joe. It's a little yeah, weird. So but, funny. Yeah. I was like, I was in the relationship with Marty. We lived on the Upper East Side, and I was like, where will we have our affair? Will it be at the Stanhope? I imagine. I projected the whole like once I got the, once I got the picture. No, none of it was real. But yeah, it was, was fun. He was 83, and I think uh, six or seven months later, he was dead. <laughs> But I have the picture. At least I have the picture. I love that Marty was like jealous that you know he was like eighty-one at the time. Yeah, I don't think he was dead that quickly. By the way, that's um, anyway. He's dead now. That's what's important. Okay. um, (laughs) uh, Thanks very much. Thank you. Nutty bars over here. uh, If anybody wants any. (laughs) I just thanks, man.
I just love Ben and Ileana up here. You know, it's like a total TCM moment. Like they're about to introduce a Henry Jaglum film or something. Like they're, like this is, um, well, our next reader we're going to get to now because she has a flight tomorrow at 6.30 a.m. So uh, let's, let's them put them out of their misery. Yeah, but, so um, without further ado, I'm not going to give a big warm-up. Yeah. One of my favorite actresses is Annette O'Toole. I mean, this I is amazing. so great. That we have amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Well, and one of my favorite films is Grace of My Heart. Oh, we, we thank met, you. I, I told Liliana this. Look is, at Jack. Jennifer, she's she's in the film. Where, Jennifer where? Warren, right Jennifer. Yeah. Oh my God. She's in the it film. was so meaningful Thank to you. to my daughter and me uh, at a certain time in our lives when we were living in Ashland, Oregon, mm-hmm. and uh, she still sings um, many many tunes from that that movie. Complete labor of love and Alice yeah. Andrews, dear friend. Still, it, it was. It's just awesome. If you haven't seen oh, it, you thank, must you. See it. thank you. Thank I'm you. I'm going to read something from your early days. Your very very early days. Yes, yes. This is this is me just to give you a very brief setup. Um, my my, you know, parents were in this hippie commune because they saw the movie Easy Rider. My father started a commune called the Studio, and then when I was like seven, eight, I made this kind of. Like, under, you know, I sort of put it together that my grandfather was Melvin Douglas, <laughs> that he was like a really famous movie star. And so I immediately attached to him and sort of thought, okay, he's my father. How do I somehow get his approval, et cetera, et cetera? Now, he tells me. He was discovered by David Blasco in like <laughs> 30s Broadway, New York. So I'm living in Connecticut. I'm living in a friggin' commune. But I'm thinking somehow I gotta find a path to be on the boards. Yeah. And that's where this comes up. Yeah. So here we go. That's it. Hope that makes sense. You guys are awesome, by the way. Thank you. They are. There's a lot of them. Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief, shining moment that was known as Camelot. Those are the famous words King Arthur utters to an idealistic young boy about the magical kingdom of Camelot. My entrance into show business could not have been further from the magic of the Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe musical Camelot, except that it was brief, it lasted for a moment, and it was called Camelot. I got my start at the Camelot Dinner Theater in Connecticut. Yes. Don't remember it, you say? That would be accurate. It lasted about six months. The Camelot was the kind of joint you performed in on your last stop out of show business on the way to the graveyard. (laughs) Donald O'Connor was there for a week, died a week later. (laughs) Richard Kiley toured in the musical Man of La Mancha for 50 years. (laughs) He played the Camelot and never did the show again. (laughs) The Camelot spared no one. One night, a man actually died in the audience. In the middle of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. We heard a crash, followed by a scream of, My husband! My husband! Snoopy. Snoopy and the chorus slowly stopped singing, Happiness is... The lights came up, and I saw a man literally killed by show business. His head face down in mashed potatoes and prime rib. His wife cried while the firemen slowly shook their heads and wheeled him away in a stretcher. They say the show must go on, but it's kind of hard to get the audience back after a thing like that. The highlight of the Camelot for me was meeting Rudy Valley. Uh. 
and learning the value of a good tape recorder, but I will get to that, except I won't in this reading. You'll have to buy the book. <laughs> the Camelot became the first sign of many that I was being singled out for larger life lessons, that maybe my life was destined to be a really, really good movie with twists and turns that made you wonder if the heroine would ever really make it. And if she did, would there be music playing in the background? One day I was riding my 10-speed home from high school when I saw a sign. Coming soon, the Camelot Dinner Theater. I nearly skidded off the road. <laughs> my grandfather got his break in the late 20s when he auditioned for theater god David Belasco. He headed to Broadway at the Belasco Theater. I was stuck in the boondocks without a theater or impresario in sight to give me a chance. The Camelot Dinner Theater would be my entree onto the boards. The next day, dolled up to an inch of my life and carrying a homemade headshot of myself, complete with hat, pretending to be a successful actress who had somehow <laughs> managed to end up in the sticks, <laughs> I met with a guy named Phil, who seemed to be in charge. He sat me down for an interview, and I immediately started trying to charm him. Mildly flirting with a man twice one's age to get a job is not yet considered politically incorrect. <laughs> It worked, and he genuinely seemed to take an interest in me. Cl clearly, he had picked me up on my earnestness about a career in show business. He was my David Belasco. <laughs> this is what I would later learn about Phil. Phil had no theater background. <laughs> Phil was a manager of sorts, trying to, uh, to, trying to looking into something new. Phil, I would learn, was a pimp. <laughs> Being a pimp meant that Phil's occupation left him with a lot of spare cash. Dirty money needs to be run through a legitimate business, so Phil's idea was simple. Why not open a dinner theater? Cl cleanse your money and put on a pretty good show while you're at it. <laughs> Phil, as I later learned, ran by-the-hour motels out on the Berlin Turnpike. That was code for brothels. That's how prostitution worked in Connecticut. You drove out to the Berlin Turnpike and got a room, or you had sex in the middle of the woods with deer watching you. <laughs> it's true. The first time I made out with a boy was in the middle of a forest. Ever since, the scent of pine needles has turned me on. Bring in a raccoon to watch me, and we could make serious dough. <laughs> Phil had a partner at the Camelot and they worked together before. Her name was Rosie. Not her real name. Her real name was probably inmate 6660027. But let's stick with Rosie. Phil's partner Rosie was, again as the gossip went, a former prostitute. And Phil's number one girl. She was a hooker with a heart of gold. Who apparently loved the smell of grease paint. It turns out that Rosie's dream, much like Rose's dream from Gypsy, and much like my dream too, was to be in show business. Now, my dream had not included working for a pimp and an ex-hooker who wanted to be out of the business and into show business. But beggars can't be choosers. Phil was your classic movie villain with slicked back hair and a thin mustache, beady brown eyes, reeking of brute cologne. He usually wore some sort of horrible brown polyester suit, his gut bulging through a pistachio shirt with a tie that was much too short. Phil was hard to look at. And he was a little scary. But for some reason, he took to me. Maybe it's because I didn't flinch the first time he showed me his gun. <laughs> <laughs> this is a dangerous 
business, he said one night. <laughs> it's hilarious. Then he opened his jacket, revealing a pistol and a shoulder holster. It was only a dinner theater, but I didn't argue. I just nodded. <laughs> you ever see a gun before, kid, he said, patting his piece. <laughs> Sure, I said, like on Burke's Law. (laughs) Phil cracked up. You're too much, kid. I hadn't meant to be funny. Burke's Law was a television show from the 60s and revived in the 90s about a millionaire chief of police who rode around in a chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce catching bad guys. Phil thought this dated reference was meant to be ironic. Most of my TV viewing took place during extended stays with my Italian grandparents in Queens watching the shows that they liked. I thought that was TV. 20-year-old reruns of the Jack Benny program, You Bet Your Life, The Phil Silver Show, The Untouchables. But my favorite was Burke's Law with its gangsters and dames and all the men who wear guns under their jackets. You're a good kid, Phil said, putting away his gun. I told Phil at that first interview that I wanted to audition for the upcoming musical, but he explained that all the shows were being cast out in New York. I was crestfallen. Phil said, I might be able to be in the chorus, but anyone who was in the chorus would not be paid. That was a freebie. I would be paid only if I worked as a waitress, a busboy, or a cocktail hostess. I could be in the chorus after I paid my dues. (laughs) Seemed pretty harsh. But that was show business, so I went along. Out of all the options, cocktail waitress seemed the most glamorous. And I had certainly seen my parents make drinks often enough. (laughs) Luckily for me, Phil gave it away when he said, But you have to be 18 to carry booze. How old are you? I'm 18, Phil. I said with a straight face. Phil laughed. Sure, kid. Then he paused. You're 16, right? I got the feeling that Phil said you're 16 right a lot in his line of work. (laughs) Yeah, Phil. I'm 16. He stared at my homemade headshot. It was a really very vampy pose, backlit, as if I were a Film siren. Phil looked me up and down again and made a decision. Good, he said. We'll tell everyone you're 18. I need someone with good boobs to carry booze. Let's call me Rosie. She runs the day-to-day. Then he winked at me. A wink that promised, someday, if you're lucky, I will take you out back and grope you while you pretend you want me to stop. two very important things that day. One, I had good boobs! No one had ever said that to me, although I thought I did. And two, keep your mouth shut during an interview. I was only 14. And should have in no way been hired to carry booze. Awesome. Yeah, it was a it's a lovely moment and it reminds me of some some uh, encounters I had too. I I used to call my grandfather Melvin Douglas and I, like again, <laughs> I thought that's what show business was. Be like grandpa this guy. Well, you know, when you're in show business. Yeah. But the end of this crazy experience at the Camelot was that Rudy Valley came in. Yeah, I love that part of the story. It's amazing. You know, and... Um, he kind I, of broke your heart. I 
found myself, I mean, again, it sounds so bizarre, but like, I'm in freaking Connecticut. We all probably, you know, maybe not, maybe I'm in my own movie, but you think, I'm gonna find some way to talk to Rudy Valley. He'll understand my dreams and my ambitions. Yeah. And so, like, I found myself backstage talking to Rudy Valley, who's like freaking 86 at this point. And, uh, Old men liked you. Old men, yeah. Yeah, Mankiewicz and yeah. Rudy. I had, the, yeah. I had the, I don't know, maybe it was a World War One kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Rudy, here's Rudy Valley performing at the Camelot Theater Theater. He's been, he's had all these successes, and like I find myself backstage, and this poor guy, where he, no one, he's trying to get on his freaking raccoon coat, and finish his goddamn act with the megaphone, and it's a nightmare. But and somehow I'm like, I I know what my role is. I will find a way to give Rudy Valley his raccoon coat. And I was like, Yes, sir. Here's your coat, sir. So he somehow mistook that for me being there for him so I knew I was like ah idea night two make sure you're there for Rudy Valley <laughs> so like Rudy, night two Rudy Valley comes off stage I'm a vagabond lover I'm like you're killing him Mr. Valley <laughs> <laughs> they love you in Middletown Connecticut here you go sir and you know and, and like by the end of the week he you know he said, I want you to, he said, I have something I want you to listen to. And I went backstage, and I was 14 years old. And I was like, this is it. Oh, my grandfather warned me about Rudy Valley's going to pounce on me. And he, but he put in, he played this little GE electric recorder. And I sat there in Middletown, Connecticut. And he said, you know what that is? And I said, um... Is it the ocean, Mr. Valley? And he said, no, it's my applause. I tape it. I tape my applause. And it was, you know, it, was, it stayed with me all these years because, again, it was this idea that you could somehow tape the joy that you've given people. And here's Rudy Valley, and no matter how many accomplishments he had, and here he is in the boondocks, giving us all and and it was uh it was like a limelight chaplain-esque yeah Yeah. it's very very moving in the book it's really heartbreaking because we've all you know felt that that you know if you could you know when you're on stage it is it's about what you're giving to the audience and what they're they're giving you and they're obviously they gave him a lot and that's the thing this was this crazy disaster i mean i told you like imagine working First week, first week you're wearing it there, somebody dies. You're like, do these people not understand the concept of show business? But, you know, and then you have like Rudy Valley, you know, who's like night after night yeah. giving his all, yeah. and it really it's impressed me. About. Well, it's, but thank it's a you. beautiful Thanks chapter. For, it's thank really, you. really fun. Thank you for and, and yeah, inviting me. Thank you, Annette O'Toole. Amazing. Holy Toledo. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. They have to read and run. They have a flight to catch. No. Where are you um, going? Yeah. Where are you guys going? Well, our son's getting married on Saturday. What? Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations, guys.
sparkly parties we're gonna go to. Awesome. Remember tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Love guys. You guys. Take care, Bye. About okay. Okay. Thanks so much. Wow. For Amazing. I, I need a Soakwood shower after that chapter. That was creepy. That was like a yeah. Well. Yeah, he's still around somewhere. Oh, God. He's not in theater anymore, I hope. (laughs) Back at the Berlin tour. You know, it's funny. When I would do the tour, the book tour, in Connecticut, it was like, you know, you do your in-jokes. But Helen Turnpike, everyone's like, because everyone wow. knows Berlin Turnpike is where the brothels are. You know Trump saves all the applause from his <laughs> yeah. speeches on an iPhone, and he plays it while he's having sex with his wife. You know he does that. You know what? Oh, really? I did not know that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, we're going to need to know that kind of stuff. You know, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by the way, downtown LA is on fire. In case anybody was uh, wondering what was happening in our little bubble. Yes, I'm teasing. I wait. Or, or am I? Um, our, our our next reader, and she's up in the loft by herself now. We we she's up there all by. There she is. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're. We have wine. I, I wanted to come. We have get wine. You, like, we you have know. booze. Does anyone need a drink? Yeah, I'm, I'm playing bartender. Oh, uh, there's Kate, Kate Micucci. Kate Micucci. Did I say that right? Is it? Micucci, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Come over here. And Kate is going to read the chapter on Ileana. What she's going to read the chapter on? I forget. She's the, uh, well, oh, oh, the great one. Marlon Brando. Meeting this Marlon Brando. This is amazing. Meeting Marlon Brando. Thank, thank you. Hey, guys. Hey. Yeah. Not hi. Hi, sweetie. <laughs> oh, I dropped my book. Sorry. I, t- I told you it's great with Trump. I don't. I'm no longer embarrassed about being an alcoholic. <laughs> no, I'm such a fan of Kate. No. I'm such a fan. I mean, I yeah. What can I you say? Adore her. I, I mean, I yeah. We I, did I, our show. We did our little web series. That's yeah. That's the first thing we did, and then we did we, a movie together, we and we got a, to hang out a lot. Yeah, we did a movie together. We shared a trailer together. <laughs> yeah, we danced and, in the trailer. Uh, <laughs> you know what funny. Kate has that's so sweet is that um, you know empathy and pathos. Oh, yeah. thanks. That's what I think. But is that why I've been crying all day? No, <laughs> not to make it about. The well, plus you have sad you eyes. You oh, know yeah. my theory. But you have sad eyes. Well, you know I have this theory. You can't be famous unless you have sad eyes. <laughs> think of Audrey Hepburn. Kind of have sad eyes. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, we have um, that. Anyway, okay. So let so, me briefly yeah. give you a setup. Um, I've met a lot of incredible people in my life. Has anyone ever met Marlon Brando? Has anyone ever met... He's, has anyone ever met anyone that you think is a mystic? Because he was a mystic. And you, and you knew that when you met him. And there's other people that I'm friends with, like Ed Bagley Jr. And like, oh yeah, he was a mystic, you know? And... um I miss him in terms of society. But again, the whole racket of show business was that I got into it because I was like, I want to meet fun people like Marlon Brando, you know. So anyway, this is sort of my fun experience about meeting him and freaking out and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So go ahead. Okay. Cool. All right, here we go. Uh, There are certain movie stars you just don't want to meet. You prefer that they remain cinematic and unreal. 
That's how I felt about Marlon Brando. He was, and still is, everything to me. Besides, what on earth would I say to him that, uh, that would not be a fangirl, fangirl and insipid? How could I express to him that I had a poster of him on my bedroom wall from the wild one, and that I had pictures of him ripped from co- covers of old life magazines, and that I, had sto- that I had stolen from the basement of my local library? I had watched his films, studied his acting, sought out his television interviews, read numerous books about him. I had just finished a book he had written about himself called Brando, Songs My Mother Taught Me. How do you have a normal conversation with Marlon Brando after you've seen The Godfather, or On the Waterfront, or Streetcar Named Desire, or Apocalypse Now, or even my childhood favorite, A Countess from Hong Kong? (laughs) Excuse me, Mr. Brando, could you please pass the bread? And by the way, everything I am or want to be or hope to be as an actor is because of you. No, impossible. Couldn't be done. Wouldn't be done. I was literally shaking in the bathroom of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Marty just laughed. He couldn't understand why I was so nervous. He repeated, you'll be fine. Don't talk about acting. I rolled my eyes. Yeah, don't mention that I audited classes with Stella Adler in the 1980s and that all she had done was talk about her most famous student, Marlon Brando. (laughs) It was time to go and I grabbed my autograph book. Marty, I said as we were walking out the door, do you think Marlon Brando will sign my autograph book? Marty gave me one one of his signature scolding looks. Be good, he said. What? I asked innocently. He had start... I had started keeping journals and autograph books ever since the first one that Roddy McDowell had given me. He was right. I had met a lot of interesting people. My journeys, journals were packed with um, entries, photos, and autographs from all sorts of folks and I had met that I had met and worked with. Marty never made fun of me for carrying it everywhere. And sometimes he even helped me get autographs. In some ways, <laughs> he shared my, my level of excitement, but, uh, but there was a limit. We were riding in the back of a limousine and now I was the one grinning like a Cheshire cat in anticipation when I got my second, Ileana, be good. <laughs> he doesn't sound like that, though. <laughs> um, yeah, he does. Did does just he? like it. Be good. <laughs> be good. Yeah. Okay, that's... Like it. <laughs> I could just hear Okay. Uh, but we were riding in the back... Oh, wait, uh, I got that part. Okay. It was a term of endearment, but I knew what he meant. Both of us could easily slip from movie fan to movie fanatic. Marty had confessed that during fittings for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, he had acquired a piece of James Dean's East of Eden wardrobe from the Warner Brothers costume department. Did he wear it? Oh, no, no. Like, we were in a relationship probably two years, and he, like, took me up to the upstairs, and he's like, I want to eat show you something and it was like james dean's jacket from east of eden that he'd stolen you know when they were doing well he's like we're doing we're looking for jackets for chris christopherson i was like yes we need this this is very important (laughs) literally stole james dean's jacket yeah yes he's Uh, a thief (laughs) one time we were having dinner at Ilya kazan's Ilya Kazan's, and I excused myself to use the powder room. Mm. They were busy eating, so I knew I wouldn't be missed for a bit. Under the pretense of looking for the bathroom, I found myself instead upstairs looking for Mr. Kazan's office. I had to see where he wrote. I found it, and it was everything I dreamed. And I confess, since I always had a camera on me, I snapped some photos of it. I got back to the table, and Marty knew I'd been up to something. (laughs) He said under his breath, be good. Be good. Be good. 
<laughs> what? I asked innocently. When I was showing him the photos, I said, I had to do it, Marty. It's history. It has to be preserved. He shook his head at me and then, of course, asked for several copies of all the pictures. We were at the event where Marty was being honored as a humanitarian, and I was running around collecting autographs from George Lucas to Sharon Stone in my sparkly micro mini. The stunning and statuesque Sharon Stone says as she's signing my book, don't you look like a little starlet? <laughs> I was wearing, again, you gotta read the whole chapter. I'm like a student of show business. And I'm wearing, I'm really good friends with dress designer Cynthia Rowley. And like, yeah, I'm wearing, I'm like you. I'm old now, but like, I'm now I'm you. I'm young, I'm cute, I'm like, I'm wearing my little Cynthia Raleigh. It's way too short. My boyfriend's getting a humanitarian award. <laughs> Sharon Stone goes, don't you look cute? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've worn the wrong. Oh, why have I worn this? It's micro mini. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) Well, which of course she meant so sweetly, but made me feel with complete and utter certainty that I probably looked like a floozy at a dance hall. I suddenly felt ridiculous walking around collecting autographs from famous people, people I knew. So I went back to the table. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. It's like George Lucas. Will you sign my autograph book? Yeah, your boyfriend's getting a humanitarian (laughs) award. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. (laughs) So I went back to the table and deposited my book there. Marty, from afar, being embarrassed, asked, Who did you get? (laughs) Oh, you know, some people, I said, sort of shyly. Then he collected his award as a humanitarian. (laughs) When the evening was over, we were rushing to get us out of there, and I realized in a panic that I had left the book behind at our table. When I went back to retrieve it, it was gone. Inside inside were all my memories, all my wonderful pictures and poems, entries from Sean Penn, Robert Mitchum, Gregory Peck, Steve Allen, Jane Meadows, Gore Vidal, Brian De Palma from the Toronto Film Festival, and an Description from one of my heroes. Uh, how do you say that name? Alan Renee. Ah, thank you. Mm. Whom I met at the something film festival. Du- oh, which one? Du- the Duville. Okay, Duville. great. That one. Yeah, for um, a movie, uh, Search and Destroy. Ah. Yeah. Never to be seen or read again. Mm-hmm. It was childish, but at the time, my whole identity as an actress was wrapped up in those words and pictures. I had worked with some of these folks, become friends with others. It was proof that I had made it in the movies, and now it was gone, and I was inconsolable. That was the emotional baggage I was carrying when I met Marlon Brando the next day. I put on a lumpy brown sweater over a thrift store plaid school schoolgirl skirt and thick woolen tights and Doc Martens. It was too late to change. Even though he was always supportive, Marlon Marty took one look at me and said, Is that what you're going to wear to meet Marlon Brando? (laughs) There was a knock at the door, and Marty and I exchanged nervous glances. He repeated his mantra, You'll be fine. Be yourself. I nodded. Right now, myself was busy feeling sorry for myself, so I knew that I couldn't be myself. I would have to act something. I had once heard Orson Welles say that we no longer place a value on listening, so I thought, that's that's what I'll act. That's the part I'll play. I will listen with great intensity. I will be Marty's wonderfully listening girlfriend. I will be still and quiet and respectful. Oh my God, the door is opening. Why am I wearing this ugly brown sweater? There was Marlon Brando, and everything I was going to act went completely out the window. First of all, his 
presence, both physical and spiritual, was enormous. <laughs> His eyes were a deep sapphire blue, a color I had never seen before, which was arresting enough, but astonishingly, they matched exactly the color of the blue velour sweatsuit he was wearing. <laughs> I thought, Marlon Brando is wearing a blue velour sweatsuit. Who made that for him? Who owns that much velour? <laughs> Does Marlon Brando know he's going to have to go through the door sideways? <laughs> he said very quietly to Marty, How do I look? Oh. Marty said, You look fantastic, fantastic, Marlon. He was always a better actor than I. Thanks, he said. I've lost 30 pounds. <laughs> Jesus, I thought. From what, 300? I am not going to make it. I'm a little embarrassed by my weight, he said. Do you mind if we order lunch up here, away from prying eyes? Would you be all right? Uh, would that be all right? Marty had a suit and tie on. Of course, he wore a suit and tie to the beach, but still. We had clearly been ready to walk out the door, but without missing a beat, Marty immediately agreed that, yes, of course, we would order up room service and have lunch in the room. That would be much better and much more intimate. Marty gave me a slightly panicked look, and I knew to discreetly call down to cancel our reservation. I left the room, and when I returned, Marlon Brando had made himself comfortable on the couch. What I mean by that was that he had taken all of the cushions off of the couch and tossed them onto the floor, and then he had taken one of the square seat cushions and propped it sideways so that it was like a pillow, and he was lying against it. There was nowhere to sit. He was basically sitting on the entire couch. With Brando already seated, I had a problem. I could not look at him, and Marty was eyeballing me like, sit down already. Opposite the couch were two French provincial chairs, and I took the one farther to the left of him so I wouldn't have to make eye contact, because I was pretty sure if I did, I would burst out laughing or crying or ask him about acting or be a phony or any of the other things that Marty had warned me not to do. I wanted to position myself slightly away from them so I could do my listening thoughtfully, my listening thoughtfully act, but not intrude upon the conversation. I instantly became a distraction. They were discussing the project, which was a biopic of John Mitchell, the attorney general for Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal, and his wife Martha. Marty tried to bring me into the conversation because my grandmother was the congresswoman Helen Gahagan Douglas, mm -hmm. who had run against and lost to Richard Nixon for a seat in the U.S. Senate, and Marty thought that Brando, a longtime liberal, would be interested in that. Marty signaled for me to join in the conversation, and I tried to say something interesting, but I just sailed off into the air, and I thought, oh yeah, go back to fake listening, Ileana. They started talking again, and I felt really stupid and out of my depth, and I was thinking, why do you make me talk, Marty? I can't say words when I'm nervous. You know that. Why am I even here? Marlon Brando doesn't want me here. I should try to excuse myself and go to the other room and leave them alone so they can talk about their project. That's when I heard Marlon Brando say to Marty, so, this is your lady friend. <laughs> and I could feel the gaze of Marlon Brando upon me. Time stopped. People say that's a cliche until it happens to you. Marlon Brando stopped time. That's how good an actor he was. <laughs> I could feel the gaze of Marlon Brando boring into my psyche. The gaze of the world's greatest actor, known for his keen observation of human beings, was turned on me. Stop everything, he said. Look at your feet. Everything stopped while we all looked at my feet, which were inverted toward each other and pigeon-toed. That's a sign of insecurity, he said. Why should you be so insecure? Was this one of those tests that Marty had talked about? Was Marlon Brando testing me to see if I was a phony? Well, I'm no phony, I thought. 
Suddenly a wave of emotion went through me, to him and back to me, and my eyes filled with tears, and things got very real very quickly. I was trying to hold back tears and wasn't succeeding. My dear girl, he said, what is it? There was a rumbling inside my core, and suddenly his voice inside me just started talking, and and I couldn't stop. I said, I am so sorry, but this is really emotional for me. I mean, you're Marlon Brando, and everything I do or want to do or be is because of you, and I am insecure. And Marty started started to laugh really nervously and explain <laughs> she's very emotional Marlon and he kind of put his arm around me as if to suggest you know be good pull yourself together kid but it was too late all of my insecurity all of my fears of not being good enough rose to the surface I decided in an instant not to deny it but just to live as my acting teacher Sanford Meisner had taught me truthfully in the moment under the given circumstances so I looked at Marlon Brando and I just started to cry Marlon Brando's eyes were now locked with mine in what felt like a mystical connection and he said my god you're a tuning fork now I'm crying (laughs) we were both crying (laughs) Marty ran to get a box of Kleenex which he handed to Marlon Brando and then Marlon Brando handed me tissues and Marty started to tell Marlon Brando about how I had lost my autograph book and how upset Marty was because it was all his fault and then he had had hustled me out of there and how they always were rushing him out of places and that he was planning to surprise me by getting Marlon Brando's autograph for me and now Marty is crying too. (laughs) All of this truth rained down on us in a suite at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Eventually the tears turned into laughter and I mean the whole thing was absurdly embarrassing and wonderful. What can I say? You simply could not be inauthentic in front of Marlon Brando. He made me be myself. Any notion of that this was going to be a normal meeting was scattered like the Kleenex at our feet. At the feet of Marlon Brando I was exhausted and starving. Ah, Yeah! Awesome! You know what? Um, eventually there will be a, a second part of this book because yes. you are going on a TCM cruise yes. next week with yeah. who? Uh, Jerry Lewis. Wow. Uh, That's Michael right. Michael York. Of course, the great... But Jerry Lewis. Like, Jerry Lewis is going to be on a, on, a, on a cruise ship, like a yes. Kathy Lee cruise ship, yeah. this time next week. Yeah. You know? There'll be, there'll be stories. There's going to be mo- many, many, many stories about yeah. that. That's... that's Oh, Absolutely yeah. stunning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully there will be. Leaving out uh, Kim Novak. Oh, what? my God. Kim Novak, wow. It's, well, we have our own, yeah, we have our Robert Wagner story that was. Yeah. That Put it, keeping him right here, you know. May, yeah. May I tell a very brief Robert Wagner story? Please, please. Put a big hand for Kate okay. for that day. Thank Kate. you, Kate. Woo! Thank you, Kate. Yay, yay. Thank you so much. Yeah. What's okay. your... Okay. So I got married on the TCM. Cruise. I, incredible. <laughs> I, got, yeah. I got I got married. I was the bride's. I got married okay. on the TCM cruise. Uh, uh, Ileana was the maid of honor. There were like you know yeah. the captain married us. It turned out <laughs> it didn't count because turns out the state of California doesn't recognize the Caribbean as a place. <laughs> what? Uh, but what? Uh, nonetheless, so. Uh, but anyway, very short version. Uh, Robert Wagner, uh, my father was there, but my wife's father wasn't, and, and Robert Wagner ended up walking my wife yes. down the aisle. But it was after a, a night where Robert Wagner had split a bottle of tequila with basically no one. Um, the whole, the whole bottle. We were told, like, order this kind of tequila, and then sure enough, and he polished it off. So the next morning, he was like, uh, he says to my wife, he's like. Is it all right if we were, if we all wear sunglasses? <laughs> <laughs> she 
was like, that's all. And she, my wife put sunglasses on. Yes. And then, and then as we start to walk down the aisle, he, he says to my soon-to-be fake wife, um, <laughs> I'll give you the same message. Since your father's not here, I'll give you the same words of wisdom that I gave my daughters when they got married. Chin up, tits out. <laughs> yes. Wow. That's going to be on the one dollar bill when, when, yeah. in a year from now when Trump isn't all. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be yeah. the. Uh, you think? Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, how can we top that? I yeah. can because yes. our last we have kind of a, we have kind of a dinner theater motif going on oh, tonight with man. Camelot, and we're going to end it yes. with a little. Uh, I'm going to sort of just get that out of the way because these two, you know, when they take the stage, nobody yeah. can even. We uh, don't even know what's going to happen. Jennifer Tilly is going to come on out Jennifer here and do some. Uh, yeah, she drove all the way from the west side, yep. brave traffic, to do this. So come on out. The doll. Hello. Hello. I'm going to stand up. You are? Because that's the kind of gal I am. Before we start reading, do you remember Do you remember when we went? It's really went? loud. It seems like it's unplugged, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. He's cute, right? Okay. All right. She's yes. such a doll. I'm no one compared to Jennifer. Remember when we went to the auction? I've never been so close to the audience in my life. (laughs) (laughs) They're like hungry beasts. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to shrink into the corner here. Okay. Do we want any setup before this? No, you said you remembered something. Uh, We went to the auction. Well, we went to the auction. I remember we went to the Marlene. We, we, you know, Jennifer is taste and style, Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm hanging on to show business by my fingernails. But um, we went to the. I remember we went to the Marlene Dietrich. Uh, do you remember that? Yes, I bought so much stuff. I have Marlene Dietrich like bathing suits. I have a cane that Noel Coward gave her for a cabaret act. That's yes. good. I, know. I should run around the house and put post-its on everything yeah. that used to belong to Marlene Dietrich because if it wasn't for that, it would just be a bunch of junk. <laughs> so. Those are the things that like you know, that's why I got into show business. Mm-hmm. It's like a part of it is for to be in the movies. But again, like I remember when we, I was like, I'm with Jennifer Tilly and we went to the Marlene Dietrich. <laughs> and I got in show business so I could buy a bunch of overpriced junk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they used to belong to famous people. But we had not met. Uh, like my brief setup is of this film is mm-hmm. I'm a student of show business. And I always secretly wanted to be in a movie that was a total train wreck. I wanted like my Myra Breckenridge. I was like, uh, they were all shooting it day after day. Didn't they know that it was, what was happening? Well, and I got it with well, Bella Mafia. When we did this movie, we all thought it was going to be a very important movie because it was yes. written by Linda LaPlante, yes. who did Prime Suspect with Helen Murin, yeah. and Vanessa Redgrave was in, and of course we all wanted to work with Vanessa Redgrave, yeah. not knowing what we know now. Yeah. And um, yeah, we all were sort of. It was going to be a really, really class operation. We were going to shoot in Palermo, Italy, Italy. Las Vegas, Italy. New Vanessa York. Redgrave. And then after we this signed time. on, they go, oh, uh, 
um, we spent too much money getting the actresses. We are filming the entire thing in Pasadena. <laughs> so there's literally a scene where we're supposed to be in Las Vegas, and they do an overhead shot of Hollywood Park. You know, on the roof it says Casino. <laughs> that was Las Vegas. But our acting was fantastic. Yeah, especially mine and Ileana's because we figured Jeez. out very early on we were not making an Emmy Award winning opus. We were making yeah. a camp fest, and so yeah. we adjusted our performances accordingly. Uh. <laughs> so we're gonna read if anyone has questions along the way. It's like, yeah, this actually all really happened, uh, but let's hit it and we'll we'll see where it goes. Yeah. My favorite disaster movie yes. I was part of was the miniseries Bella Mafia. Uh. About three bucks. Are you going to groan through the entire <laughs> reading? <laughs> I'm going to be like, like Rachel Maddow. About three bucks and broads and their mafia mama who seek revenge on the men who killed their husbands. I always thought Alive was going to be the most challenging (laughs) film I worked on, but I was wrong, as I told Bella Mafia's 76-year-old director. That's when I knew I had lost it. I worked on a mountain! We flew to the set by helicopter 14,000 feet in the air, in the snow, for Disney! And it was easier than shooting this scene! In my defense, I said that only after the following exchange occurred over a bowl Oh, nuts. All right, I'm playing David Green, outraged elderly director who cannot hear. What are you doing? Confused actress, me. Uh, I'm eating the nuts, holding out a nut in my hand to show him. Director, are you going to eat that nut? Are you? Because if you eat that nut, I will not shoot the scene. Actress, fine. Take the nuts away. Actress hands the bowl of nuts to the art department. Art department (laughs) is standing by with a bowl of nuts. First assistant director, losing the nuts. (laughs) Director. Hang on, hang on. You you can't shoot the scene without without eating the nuts. First assistant director to the art department, holding on the nuts. Art department, I'm holding my nuts. By this time, entire crew is snickering. Incredulous director David Green. Oh, are you saying, Ileana, you can't do the scene without the nuts? Incredulous actress. If you have nuts on the table, I am going to eat the nuts. If you don't want me to eat the nuts, take them away. First assistant director, that's a wrap on the nuts. More snickering from the crew. Director David Green, I, I, I sweat the nuts in the scene. I want the nuts in the scene. Our, our department comes back with the nuts. 
director David Green to the actress me. Can are you saying can you do the scene with the knots? By this time there were tears in everyone's eyes as they struggled to hold back laughter, except for me, because this was not remotely funny anymore. I tried one last fateful time to explain the nuts. Actress picks up a nut from the bowl and says with the very best of intentions, David, she is nervous in the scene. She is meeting her mother-in-law as she is nervously waiting. She thinks about eating a nut. Frustrated, tired director. Are you finished with a nut? (laughs) When you're finished with a nut, we'll start to shoot the scene. Frustrated, tired actress loses it, references alive. She worked on a mountain, blah, 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 blah. No, David, no, no, no. I am not done with the nut. What I am saying is, you are nuts. You're nuts. You're nuts. You're nuts. So I don't need any more nuts in the scene because you are nuts. I am done with the nuts. And to this day, this is my all-time favorite quote from any director I have ever worked for. Director, fine, fine. Ileana, you do it wrong and I'll shoot it and we'll all go home early. (laughs) (laughs) Applause from the casting crew. Probably the funniest scene I was ever a part of not caught on film. According to my Bella Mafia co-star, Jennifer Tilly. Right there. There is more to the story. Yes. We finally finished shooting the scene, and David, our director, came over to me and said very sweetly, I was going to have a lovely close-up of you, but you took so long with the knots, we ran out of time. And scene. <laughs> So, this is so long. This is like noises off. So, we're truncating this. But I'm telling you. Where's my wine? Where is it? Where is it? I need it. But, I mean, the affection I have for the cast and the director. Like, I've dined out for years on Bella Mafia stories. So, we're going to like, we're going to go in depth because this was my dream. I wanted to be part of a movie that was a train wreck <laughs> and figure out like what went wrong. And so I'm going to start with like this the the reasons that I think it went wrong. I'm going to start with who I blame, which was Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> oh my god, to work with Academy Award winning actress Vanessa Redgrave. I saw every movie she was in, Julia. She won an Academy Award. It was a film I, I particularly loved, the, the, as well as the TV movie, Playing for Time. She was a genius, is a genius, every moment she plays on film. You can't take her, her eyes off her. When I was in acting school, true story, I went to see her in Orpheus Descending. You know, they used to. Like, oh, is she going to take her clothes off tonight? <laughs> this was like 
so inside, deep inside New York. But certain nights, she would take her clothes off for that for that Broadway show, Orpheus Descending. Life-changing. This was going to be the most thrilling experience of my life, and it was. On the very first day of shooting this scene, we were shooting a scene. We were cleaning up after a murder or something. Or something. I, we don't know. Anyway. We were we'll, always mopping up blood. Yeah. We're always bobbing a blub. And we were in a scene, we were all in black slips, and we were displaying a lot of cre- cleavage that was tits and guns, which was the executive. He told me that I was going to be in the movie, a lot of tits and guns. And I was on the floor, and I was scrubbing blood with a brush, and I was crying. And Vanessa Redgrave whacked me in the face with a bloody towel, and I whacked her right back. Real, it was like, oh, real actor studio stuff. I'm down for this. I'm into it. And she laughed afterwards and she put her arm arm around me. She said, marvelous. Marvelous. It was marvelous. Come to my room for some tequila. And Vanessa Redgrave took me under her wing and I thought, oh my God, this is why I got into show business. This movie is going to be amazing. I'm going to learn so much. The second day we were shooting a scene and she started to have a discussion with the director David Green about some piece of business involving luggage tags mm-hmm. okay the director was it seemed simple right they you know no 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 she said I completely disagree they wouldn't have luggage tags isn't that right Ileana <laughs> I I I completely disagree, David. Don't you, Ileana? (laughs) And I was going to have to decide on the second day whose side I was on. And, of course, I thought, I'm going to agree with Vanessa. Who doesn't want to have tequila every day? And the director... Never forgave me. I was on his bad, non-hearing well side for the rest of the production. One day, I was walking to the set, and I was very upset about my swiped dress, which I will get to in a moment. And I passed by one of the producers, and he was shaking. He said, you missed the worst scene in there. And I said, oh, (laughs) the scene was bad? And he sighed, and he said, well, that too, but the scene between Vanessa and David. I doubled over with laughter. One particularly long day on the set, they were going at it, and Jennifer Tilly quipped, this movie isn't going to end because she is going to kill him, and then there will be the trial of Bella Mafia, and we'll all be shooting that. Like I said, a lot of uh, laughing and crying. Now... We're going to get to our some of our co-stars. We have so many, but let's let's touch on Nastasia Kinski, shall we? <coughs> okay. One day, <laughs> I came to work, and I passed Nastasia Kinski. She said hello very quietly, and I noticed something strange about her. She was wearing my dress. (laughs) 
<laughs> she whispered as I passed. I should mention that Nastasia barely spoke above a whisper. Sexy in real life uh, is great, but in a scene, it's tough when you're trying to act with that person. I would be be with her in a scene, a foot away from her, and I would look at Jennifer, and I'd say, I can't hear anything. Is she she talking? (laughs) And then Jennifer would answer in her signature baby voice, what did she say? I'm like, that's why I'm leaning forward in every scene in this fucking miniseries. I never could hear my (laughs) co-stars. Anyway, I'm here in Hollywood. I headed to Wardrobe, and I said, guys, I just passed Nastasia Kinski, and she's wearing my dress. (laughs) I know, they said. She saw it hanging there, and she wanted to wear it. (laughs) I said, but I'm... I'm wearing it. You picked it out for me. I'm wearing it in the scene. The wardrobe lady was so blasé. By that point, she said, yeah, we tried to explain that to her, but, you know, she liked it. I said, wait, so, uh, but wait a minute. I wore the dress in another scene, so we're, we're both... We're both going to be wearing the same dress in different scenes. So our characters, even though we're wives, we share dresses in the scene. And they didn't even care. They just shrugged. I couldn't wait to get to the set every day, pen in hand, ready to write down everything that happened. Then again, who would believe it? (laughs) I often joked I became friends with Jennifer, only so I could have someone to confirm the crazy onset stories. I learned a lot about humor on the set of Bella Mafia. So many people wrote in my autograph that my sense of humor had got them through what one actor had described (laughs) as madness. When something happened, I just took my cue from Dennis Farina. I didn't complain. I just made a joke about it. There were always trailers or rooms for everyone on the set, but somewhere along the way they started thinking of Jennifer Tilly and me as roommates. I would get to the set and I wouldn't have a trailer and they would say, oh, we put you in Jennifer's room because we know you two are friends. (laughs) Well, we weren't really friends. I'm sure they were just doing this to save money, but I never said anything because, of course, I wanted to room with Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Who else could I have a nice gossip with? And I really hoped we would become friends. In the morning, I would see Jennifer in the makeup trailer. She hardly needed any makeup. She was naturally very beautiful. (laughs) Okay, I I just wrote that part myself. (laughs) I would see her in the makeup trailer, and we would exchange pleasantries like, 
Jennifer, you're so gorgeous. What do you do? And Jennifer would say, oh, nothing, just born that way. Okay, <laughs> pleasantries, something like that. All the bad writing is mine. <clears throat> and she would leave and I would think, I bet she has no idea she is sharing a room with me. I can't tell you how many times I would go to Jennifer's room lugging my costumes and she would be lounging on the bed reading a script or taking a nap her clothes strewn about and she would be completely surprised but always gracious about my arrival and I would explain that apparently they had assigned me to her room again and I would clear a path among her shoes and her jewels and <laughs> I'd find myself a spot I was trying to make her laugh with something outrageous that had happened on the set I don't know if I just wore her down but eventually I would just go to her room whether I had my own room or not so I could pester her about some of my favorite Jennifer performances, such as the ones in Bell, Lady Ride, yes, and of course Bullets Over Broadway. Bad. Genius. Hold for applause. <laughs> we got up to a lot of. She actually put that in because she was worried people wouldn't know who I was. So she no. that is actually there in the book. I was not self promoting. We got up to a lot of hijinks together. One day, we decided we would overact yes. a scene, yes. playing with lots of wild hand gestures. So if the line was, there on the table, we would both point wildly there. at the table, the table as if it was a murder mystery. There on the table. Or if the line was, they are taking the roof from over our head, we would point mad to the roof. They're taking the roof from over our head. <laughs> Poor David, I think once he almost noticed what we were up to. The worst outrage of Bella Mafia is we never got to do another movie together because I love Jennifer to pieces. And I think mm. she's just wildly talented. Yes. She created a type, sassy, sexy, mm -hmm. funny. A Jennifer Tilly type that yes. only she can play. Although I have tried to imitate her on many occasions. Except for the cleavage. <clears throat> Jennifer wrote in my autograph book, You have a knack of repeating the way something happened and making it hysterical. I laughed till tears squirted out of my eyes. Let's hope we're not in the television version of Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> Yay, thank you so much. Yay! Yay! Woo! Thank you. And Ileana got a part that I really, really wanted, which, which was one? to die for. Uh, I went in, I gave it my best, and at the end, Buck Henry was very, very perturbed. And he said, you said a lot of stuff that wasn't in the script. And yeah. I suddenly realized I had made a horrible, horrible mistake. And next thing I knew, there was Ileana yeah. wearing ice skates doing my part. Well, it's so funny because, you know, I write about, I wrote about my book. It was like, well, that, that was an interesting time where you'd like go audition for a movie and there'd be like 30 people you really respected that were trying to be in the in the in the movie you know so it was yeah. intense let's have another round of applause for yes. all our readers yes. Ra raise yes. the horn
Ben Mankiewicz, Kate Micucci, Annette Hayes, uh, yes. and of course, Jennifer Tilly, everyone. Jennifer Tilly, I feel like we absolutely amazing. Um, yes. If you want, we can do a quick like Q and A. If you guys yeah, have any yeah. questions for it, then we're gonna open it up and we're gonna do this whole like signing thing. Is that right? Yeah. But yeah. if you guys have any questions, we're not come leaving. at us, or you can save them and wait and ask her in person as you have as she signs your book for you. You can do either yeah. one. Please feel any questions, anybody? We covered a lot tonight, so you you know yeah, you, guys you may need to be awesome. backtracking. Thank you, so much. you guys have been great. There's many more we're, like we're so glad we could make you guys laugh tonight because let's face it, yeah. we all needed it, I think, and I'm glad you guys came out. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Now Thank go home you. and yell at egg avatars on Twitter and uh, <laughs> write a blog and you know no no come on. But thanks again, guys. Uh, questions, Coco? Yes. Hi. Mm. In, in, insane because you have to remember my dad had like a poster of him in our living room he was our god our disciple and then you know I was so excited to meet the real Dennis Hopper and, and ask him for all the money I thought he owed me and <laughs> blame him for my whole childhood yeah. and then I, crazily on the night I was doing a low budget movie and on the day I was supposed to meet him which is a very long extended story but we I was in a car accident on the day I was supposed to meet him and it ended up that the way I met Dennis Hopper was having him cradle me kind of in my arms and so I had this kind of transformative experience where he essentially sort of I forgave my own father because of meeting Dennis Hopper and sort of understanding the the importance and the poignancy of of you know of films and what that was but Dennis Hopper was a mystic yeah. he was an incredible photographer uh, he changed filmmaking with a movie like Easy Rider and again we're in this you know we're in this critical time where it's um, we're so cynical and I think that the thing that I got from my parents was this innocence that they really thought seeing a movie could change their lives and they believed the values of Dennis Hopper and I really believed when I met Dennis Hopper he carried that he carried those values with him, and I I feel that movie stars do that. I feel that Gregory Peck is the guy from, you know. And if we don't have that, it we have nothing. We have to look to these people, the Sidney Poitiers, the Dennis Hoppers, you know, that have we where where our brains are like wet cement, and we've looked to them and like, all right, well, we may not agree about religion and this and that, but again, we believe in these movie people, and they sort of show us the way, I, I, you know. Yeah. And so Dennis Hopper certainly was that for me, and doing this film with him, Search and Destroy, he was a mystic, and he loved uh, James Dean that person changed his life and him, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm I have a quick question um, sure. the movie Lost in America with Albert yeah. Brooks is basically about have you ever met Albert Brooks and mentioned this to him well he's in my book because again my life is a movie uh, I met him under extremely crazy circumstances of shooting a web series at a at a place up in Bel Air is a very long extended he's like my idol I love yeah. Albert Brooks he's to me he's like you know he created sort of uncomfortable comedy but um, (laughs) 
you know, I did get a chance, an opportunity to meet him very briefly, and uh, it was to me that's always like those moments where we have to look at where like oh the gods are touching us, yeah, and yeah, we're. Uh, we're, you know, moving one, one of my coolest um, celebrity sightings. I once, I once saw John Cleese walking into a relax the back store, which is awesome because he does the wow. whole like silly walks thing, and it just uh, just the him walking in there was like such a surreal thing for I, me. That was the coolest know, was, thing ever I ever saw. Pasadena, you're very nice. You what? I saw him at Romans in Pasadena. John really? Cleese, or? wonderful guy. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the thing we like. They sort of give us a lift, and we don't even yeah. know why. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Any, any, anybody else with questions? Or Oh, sir. Hi. Hi, Eliana. You said Hi. tonight that uh, your life is a movie. Yeah. So when you were doing Grace of My Heart, you uh, mentioned earlier uh, that you went into the real building when you were working there. Yeah. Which was later on, of course, there, but earlier with the songwriting place. And then you also mentioned being in the commune with your parents. And both of those things were in that movie. You have your own... Oh, listen, when I worked for Peggy Siegel, you know, I got out of school and I used to walk the halls of the Brill Building and there's a crazy movie. Does anyone remember the movie called The Best of Everything? Like, again, these 50s movies were like, you know, pretty girls with nice hairdos would move to New York like that's what I thought my life was going to be I'm like I'm now working for Peggy Siegel but she's really like Joan Crawford and I you know the first <laughs> so I would go to vintage stores and I had my little outfit and I'd walk the hall of the Brill building and I'd look at the guy in the morning and he'd be polishing the brass and I was totally in love with the aesthetic of what the Brill building was and I I was completely convinced that all I needed to do was like walk through the halls of the Brill Building and, you know, meet my future husband. Maybe he'd be mm-hmm. Stephen Boyd, you know. Uh, and, oh, guess what? It's Martin Scorsese, you know. But, like, the first day I worked, I was riding in the elevator and I was riding in the elevator with Warren Beatty and Elaine May and they were talking about Ishtar and I was like, yeah, yeah. this is the world. I, who wants to be a waiter, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. this is the world. So sometimes there is a little bit of stardust in terms of maybe yeah. possibly creating the world you want to be in. I mean, like, you know, again, when I worked for Peggy Siegel, we worked with Sidney Pollack. I wasn't, and I write about this in the book, I wasn't an actress. I was so excited just to be in show business. So if I was assigned to Norman Jewison or Sidney Pollack or Rob Reiner or any of the people that we were working with, I accepted that as part of my journey into, well, maybe I'll become an actor, maybe I'll be a writer, maybe I'll be a director. It just seemed like I was living my life as if it were a movie. Yeah. We have to wrap it up. We're running a little oh. bit behind schedule. but um, Terrible. Okay, real quick one. Just because, just because you and Marty, do you have any Harvey Keitel stories? Like, where you Marty or anything? He's a doll. <laughs> <laughs> My only Harvey Keitel story, I've got two. I remember... Being in acting school, and he was doing Hurley Burley on the Upper West Side, and he hit on me. Wow. 
<laughs> I was thrilled. I was like, a movie star is kind of hitting on me. But then years later, I remember, I just remember like Marty talking about him as le- in Last Temptation of Christ and that it may have been a mistake <laughs> to have him do the voice of the lion. It sort of sounded like Groucho Marx. <laughs> I sort of remember that. But it, yeah, in that in that part. But he's he's amazing and lived downtown in the village yeah. and amazing actor. Uh, has, has anyone seen him in the film Youth? The Italian. Yes, My with Michael Caine. Yes, it's very. My God, what an incredible! Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge Harvey Keitel fan. They're literally telling me I have to get off stage. All right, we have, we cannot. A big hand for Ileana Douglas, and please, if you have any more questions, in line to get your book signed. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.